Hello, this is the Tolkien Professor checking in with the second installment of my new feature, the Tolkien Chats. Now, I was going to begin this episode with some announcements, as there are several cool events coming up soon, as well as some great new developments in the Tolkien Professor world. However, when I sat down to make a list, I found that there were so many announcements that I thought they deserved their own segment. In the next day or two, therefore, I will post a separate announcement mini-episode, in which I will explain all of the exciting things that are going on. Without further distraction, therefore, let's get right to today's Tolkien chat. This second conversation is with Tara Holstie. Those of you who have been following my podcast for a while will remember Tara. She was the one with whom I gave the joint lecture on Tolkien and the Environment last year, which I posted on my website this past summer. You may recall that I introduced her as Shannon Holstie at the time, but fear not, it's the same person. Tara graduated from Washington College, near the very top of her class, in 2007, and since then she's been working at the college's Center for the Environment and Society. At the center, Tara spearheads the college's recycling initiative and designs and maintains the center's slick and flashy website. Tara and I have had many conversations about Tolkien. One issue we've been discussing quite a bit lately is Tolkien's views on government. That's a larger issue that she and I will return to another day, but in the meantime, we both were interested to talk about a related topic that was raised on my discussion forum, the relationship between social classes in Tolkien's work, and especially the treatment of master-servant relationships. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about here today is class relations in Tolkien. Um, and it's something that I think, you know, in talking to a lot of students and everything, it seems, especially, I mean, of course, I teach at an American college, um, that... Americans in general seem to be often pretty uncomfortable with the way that Tolkien depicts class relations, especially the relation between master and servant. But really, any time you have somebody who is clearly upper class and you know, interacting with others who are clearly lower class in that society, um, it often Americans get uncomfortable with that. I mean, it, you know, and, and one could say even more broadly that. Societies in Tolkien are clearly hierarchical. I mean, hierarchy <laughs> is, is a big no thing. There's no question, I think. Yeah. Um, and again, that I mean, hierarchy, Americans are uncomfortable with. So that is a subject for discussion today. It might make sense to start with uh, something that audiences might be a little more familiar with, which is the relationship between Frodo and Sam, which, yeah. uh, as you see in the movies, is greatly uh, deviated from what you see in the books, where in the books there's a very clear master-servant relationship. Uh, Sam is a servant, first and foremost, and throughout all of the journeys, even as they get closer and closer together and become more familiar and that kind of thing, Sam is still a manservant, um, which I think uh, one of the things that always struck me was when they get back to the Shire and they meet the gaffer again and, and he goes, well, how has Sam's service been to you, Mr. Frodo? And Frodo Has he goes, given satisfaction, <laughs> he says, in that classic British servant phrase, yes. <laughs> and for, oh, Frodo says, oh, yes, he was most satisfactory, uh, which, of course, is a little ironic to the reader that knows Sam has just carried Frodo up Mount Doom. Um, yes. But there's, there's still a very clear distinction, whereas in the movies, I think to make it a little more comfortable to the American audiences, uh, Sam is, oh, now he's more of a friend and he may start out as being the gardener, but he's a very um, friends with my gardener, and yeah. we hang out at the pub at night. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, especially the hanging out at the pub at night <laughs> from the beginning. I mean, you can see that Frodo and Sam are already just pals from the beginning, yes. though though Sam also happens to, 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 to garden. garden. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, I was actually impressed in some ways at how much of the servant dynamic the movie kept. I mean, you're right, it didn't keep much, but I was surprised it kept as much as it did. I mean, yeah. he still call, uh, Sam still calls Frodo master. Uh, he usually calls at, him at mister, I think. 
Yeah, well, he calls him Mr. Frodo. Yeah. But even that, I mean, the the, the distinction, I mean, Frodo certainly doesn't call Sam Mr. Sam. I, yeah, mean, so, I mean, there's clearly like a recognition of class difference in his calling him Mr. Frodo. But he, he does refer to him as, as, I mean, in the books, he refers to him simply as master yes. more often than not. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's his standard form of address in conversation. And that is certainly downplayed in the film. But that dynamic isn't absent, as I, in some ways, kind of might have expected it to be absent in the films. But you're right, they certainly do downplay it. It's always been interesting to me why, uh, and it's understandable, I would say, for Tolkien to use that kind of relationship, because at the time that he was writing, that was still fairly standard in Britain, that you would have your manservants, and there was a very clear, they're over here, and I'm over here, and we may be kind of friendly, but, you know, there's still that line there that isn't frequently crossed uh, by the modes of etiquette. But interesting, then, that... um, Frodo would have his manservant accompany him on the quest, and he would end up being the one that follows him all the way and stays with him even after his friends have gone off in other directions. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think of that moment um, in uh, the chapter, A Conspiracy Unmasked in the Fellowship of the Ring, when Merry and Pippin sort of reveal that they know what's going on and Mm -hmm. that they're going to come with him and everything. When, you know, Merry says, we are your friends, Frodo. Yeah, he is kind of implicitly including Sam in that, and they've been working with Sam. Um, But it's still clear, even from there, that it's like the three friends and Sam. And it's not that they're not friendly with Sam, but but he is still clearly different. Um, But I agree. Coming back to what you said before, it's very clear from the beginning of The Hobbit, um, much less The Lord of the Rings, from the beginning of The Hobbit, it's very clear that Hobbit society is supposed to be familiar and comfortable. uh, To Tolkien's audience. I mean, it's not exactly British society, but... It is sufficiently like British society <laughs> that it's kind of an imaginative home base. You know, mm-hmm. it is the it is the familiar world, and then the adventures sort of come into that world, or, or then you leave that world and go into the adventurous world, and coming away in the there and back again pattern. Um, in the Hobbit, certainly, and even in the Lord of the Rings, though it's a much longer, a bigger, there. yeah, <laughs> yes, we're away a bit longer, or at least it feels a lot longer. But anyway. Um, so in that way, as you say, it's hardly surprising that the social structure of the Shire would be similar to yes. the social structure of, of, you know, early 20th century Britain. What is interesting is maybe how it persists outside the Shire. Yeah. When yeah. they leave the bounds and, you know, to the extent that, I, you know, when you get later, later on in Return of the King and that kind of thing, the the lines are blurred because, you know, you can't necessarily have your manservant out in the wild, like... Early on in the fellowship, before I think they even leave the Shire, there are a couple passages where Pippin is like, oh, Sam, go make us breakfast, you know, <laughs> yes. go take yes. care of the chores and this kind of thing. But later on, um, even though Sam might do his share of the cooking and that kind of thing, it becomes, I think, more of an equal yeah. partnership almost, even though there's still that, oh, Master Frodo, oh, I'm following right. you because that's my job. That's what I do. Right. And of course, Sam does the cooking because he loves to cook as yeah. well. I mean, this isn't a, but, but yeah, I mean, though interestingly, that moment um, when when Pippin passes the buck to Sam, it, it, when it, that's in Three is Company, I think, when, yes. when they're going across the Shire and uh, Pippin wakes up and, and it would, Frodo tells Sam uh, to, to oh, what does he tell him to do? Get water? Anyway, he tells him to do some chore. And then Pippin immediately tells Sam, Sam, go, go do that. But Frodo comes and kicks Pippin out of bed and makes him do it. So yeah. there's, you know, it's clearly not accepted between them. Oh, well, granted, Sam will do the menial chores and, and, and we shall not. So we see them not exactly on a, on a, on a ground of, of equality, but certainly not a sort of presumption of – I mean, although Sam is – 
Frodo's manservant, as you say, it's he's not like he's he's his valet. I mean, like, you know, as they're on the way to Mount Doom, he's like, you know, Sam, you didn't polish my shoes this morning or whatever. I mean, they're not, you know, we see. Sam, where's my newspaper? Right, exactly. We see Sam. We do see Sam performing acts of service for Frodo. I mean, I think especially of that really cute passage. Uh, right when they're leaving Rivendell, when Sam is reviewing all of the things that he remembered to bring, and he's remembered several things that Frodo forgot, and he's like treasuring up the the moment when later on Frodo's going to realize he forgot it, and Sam's going to triumphantly <laughs> pull it out because he remembered. You know, see, so we can see Frodo th- or Sam thinking of Frodo in those ways and sort of caring for him in those ways, but it's not like you know he's 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 brushing his clothes and and yeah, and, 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 and shining his shoes. But I mean, I think I mean again coming back to to something you said earlier. It's it is really remarkable the way that Tolkien doesn't just sort of utilize that social structure, but I was going to say glamorizes it, but that's not the right word. Is there a verb form of the noun hero like to heroicize? That heroicize that should be a word. Is there a word like that? I don't know. Heroicize. I'm always thinking of these words that should exist, but I, don't. I've used that before. I think. Ah. But anyway, he 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 makes servanthood heroic yes. in this in this book, you know, and so that's and I don't think you know some people, some who are more a little bit more cynical, might be tempted to say, "Well, see, this is just like Tolkien being really invested in this class system and mm-hmm. saying that you know if you're a servant, your job is to be a good servant and shut up." But I mean, I don't at all think that that's the dynamic there. I mean, one of the passages. Um, which often strikes people as kind of funny, and, and Sam fans always uh, 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 kind of recoil at this. At the very end of the Silmarillion, uh, Tolkien gives a, a sort of a, a very brief, uh, like, three-paragraph summary of the plot of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and here is, this, here is his, his description of the destruction of the ring. For Frodo the halfling, it is said, at the bidding of Mithrandir, took on himself the burden, and alone with his servant, he passed through peril and darkness, and came at last in Sauron's despite even to Mount Doom. Alone with his servant, Frodo went to Mount Doom. And again, you know, Sam lovers are always kind of appalled by that. Yeah. <laughs> by the, you know, Frodo by himself, practically by himself. Man, alone with his... Sam doesn't even get mentioned by name. Alone with his servant. And it seems so slighting, but... I actually think that that passage is not at all sliding in that way. At least his treatment of Sam as servant. It's not that Sam is a second-class citizen because he's a servant. Yeah. Sam is a hero because he's a servant. Um, and it's not just that, like, you know, he's like a servant hero. Like, that is a hero for other servants. Like, all servants should try to be what Sam <laughs> is. I mean, it's, it's not like that kind of very limited sc- uh, scale yeah. heroism. But rather, he, I mean, there's a place in, in Tolkien's letters... Um, and this had always been my own conviction reading the story as well. And, and, and Tolkien said this in one of his letters that Sam is the chief hero of, of, of the whole story. Um, even more so than Aragorn or Frodo or Gandalf, Sam is in one sense the true hero of this book. I mean, that's why the book ends with him. You know, the, the, that's why the very last lines of the Return of the King are, you know, Sam coming home and saying, I'm back. I mean, he's sort of still the focal point. And his return to... Bag end and, you know, the domestic sphere there is the real conclusion of the story. Well, and all of them, especially Frodo, seem pushed along more by destiny than anything else, whereas Sam is the one that he makes a conscious decision. 
I'm going to follow Mr. Frodo. You know, it's not necessary. There may be some touch of destiny there, but Frodo almost doesn't have a choice as to where his path leads. And whereas Sam is the one that comes along and, you know, he chases him out into the water when Frodo tries to go off without him. And Sam goes, no, no, I'm coming with you. You know, Gandalf told me to stay with you. But I think the interesting question there might be, um, would Sam have... You know, does Sam follow him out of it's his duty, or does Sam follow him just purely out of his love for Mr. Frodo as a person? Yeah, well, and that's it's really hard to distinguish between those two things. I mean, uh, in Sam's mind, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, in the highly theoretical case in which we could ask Sam that question, <laughs> I certainly can't imagine that he would draw a distinction between those two things. Yeah. Um, if anything, I would say that it seems to me that his personal love for Frodo is the number one thing. That he, you know, his devotion to Frodo personally it would certainly be hard to argue that Sam is motivated by pure duty. Yeah, well, he's, that he's, he's not motivated... being paid wages or anything. <laughs> right, exactly, on this trip. and that you know what drives him is the principle that like one should obey one's master. You yes. know that like you know when Sam wakes up in the morning, he's like, "Well, I have to be a good servant today." <laughs> I mean, no, he's like, "I have to serve Mr. Frodo today." Um, so yeah, it, the the love for Frodo is the is the actuating thing. But again, that's that love is entirely in the context of that master-servant relationship. So, I mean, that's why I think the two would be pretty in, inseparable uh, to Sam because his love, his devotion to Frodo is what drives him, but the whole way in which he understands that devotion to Frodo is in the sense of duty. He is not only Frodo's friend. He's Frodo's servant. And so, yeah, Merry and Pippin are devoted to Frodo, and would do risk their lives for him and, and are willing to go on this quest to, to accompany him. But, um, but Sam has a different sort of sense of responsibility. You yeah. know, there's a sense in which Sam seems to consider himself less of a free agent, but, but, but I don't want to contradict the point that you made before. Cause I think it's a very true one. There is a way in which Sam's choice is from the outset more deliberate, or I'd say even more deliberately self-sacrificial. Frodo mm -hmm. is setting out to save the Shire. He finds in the end that he has saved the Shire, but in order to do that, he had to lose it himself. Yes. But he doesn't know that at the beginning. <laughs> you know, he's not saying, I'm, I mean, he is self-sacrificial in the sense that he's giving up the Shire by leaving it. That is, he's not going to stay in the Shire. He's, yes. he, he's going to leave it behind. And he knows he's probably not going to come back. And that right, well, because he thinks he's probably going to die <laughs> well, <yeah. right? laughs> or live, you know, in exile, you know, on the run for the rest of his life. Um, so in that sense, I mean, it is self-consciously self-sacrificial, but he still doesn't perceive or guess at the beginning exactly the kind of sacrifice that he's going to end up making, yeah. you know, when he comes home and he can come home and he does come home to the Shire, but finds that he can't really come home and that it's not really home anymore in the same way. And he can't be satisfied there and he can't be happy there because he's, because he's wounded because he can't be, you know, he can't, he has to give up middle earth entirely. Sam from the beginning is explicitly and deliberately well, self I was going to say self-sacrificial, but that, I don't think that's even quite the right word. Not really self-sacrificial, but he does make the choice. Like Gandalf says, Sam, why don't you go with Frodo? But, uh, you know, if Sam had said, well, no, I'm, I'm going to stay here in the Shire, then probably nobody would have argued that terribly with him. And um, 
I always thought it was interesting, too, that in the books, uh, when Gandalf says, why don't you go with Mr. Frodo, Sam goes, oh, I get to see elves. And in the movies, he goes, don't turn me into a toad, which is from the books as well. But it's he goes more out of fear, and yeah. he's kind of dragging his feet a little bit, whereas in the books, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. We're going to go on this adventure yes. and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, we do see him divided. I mean, there's that wonderful moment in the book where he says, hooray, and bursts into tears. Yeah. But, 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 yeah, I mean, he's clearly not motivated by... Uh, by fear. Uh, and in fact, of course, when in the conspiracy unmasked, we learn that Sam has been helping Mary and Pippin to spy on Frodo out of concern for him, lest yeah. he go off by himself. We can basically see that Sam is, of course, not even surprised when <laughs> Gandalf catches him. And it's not, it's not like he's discovering for the first time that Frodo might leave. Or fearing for the first time. So there he's only just sort of finally putting into practice something which he had obviously been thinking about anyway. Important moment that I think of when you think about Sam's choice is the conversation that Sam and Frodo have right after the night with Gildor and the elves in the Shire. Oh, when Sam tells him what the elves told him. Yeah, basically. yeah, exactly. Frodo says to Sam, it's going to be very dangerous, Sam. It's already dangerous. Most likely neither of us will come back. If you don't come back, sir, then I shan't, that's certain, said Sam. Don't you leave him, they said to me. Leave him, I said? I never mean to. I am going with him if he climbs to the moon, and if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with, I said. They laughed. I love how they, well, the elves laugh at almost everything, but, uh, but there is something, of course, quite funny about Sam Sam's Gamgee. standing up to the black riders. Right. Of course, and, and, but it's so wonderfully and deliciously ironic in retrospect. I mean, how, how cute um, and absurd that sounds, but of course, we'll see... Mary, in fact, standing <laughs> up not behind the black rider, not yeah, okay. in front of him. But but anyway, we'll see. You know, Mary actually striking, helping to strike down uh, the captain rider. of the black riders, and we'll see Sam standing between Sheila and Frodo. So you know, actually, he will go on to do things like this. Um, but but it, but it just sounds impossibly cute at the time. Um, and then he explains that he was talking to the elves. F Frodo goes on to ask, do you feel any need to leave the Shire now, now that your wish to see them has come true already, uh, re referring to the elves? Yes, sir. I don't know how to say it, but after last night I feel different. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see elves now, nor dragons, nor mountains that I want. I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. And Frodo says, I don't altogether. Um, so the interesting things that I think that we can see here is he does explicitly say he is motivated, as you pointed out, when uh, Gandalf catches him and assigns him to go with Frodo. A part of his motivation is, one can say this is an unfair word, selfish. That is, he wants to see elves. He wants to do this. And so he wants he's... to see the tales and that yeah. he's so obsessed with and that kind of thing. Yeah. So he, he is, in <laughs> some measure, gratifying his own desire. Um, that is, going away with Frodo will gratify his own desire, and he looks forward to that. But um, here, he, is, he's, he now has a new perspective on it. And you know, it's not to see elves or dragons or mountains that he wants to go. Um, he, is, he recognizes that he's no longer motivated, and what he says he is motivated by has nothing to do with either of the things that we were talking about before, that is neither his personal devotion to Frodo nor his sort of duty as a servant, but a much higher duty, that there is some task that he has, that he has some sense of, of a job. That's the phrase he uses later, you yeah. know, when he's talking to Frodo, how long will it take us to do the job, meaning cast the <laughs> ring into the, in, yeah. in, in, into the fire. He has some job to do. And so he sees this, this higher duty, but again, if, uh, 
his duty and his perception of that duty is still all about, is still intimately tied with that promise that he made to the elves the night before, saying, you know, I won't leave him, you know, I'll follow Mr. Frodo if he climbs to the moon. Which is kind of interesting, because um, I was I was thinking before, you, you see the other two hobbits, Merry and Pippin, who are, are Frodo's friends, and how when they split off, it's almost like they're drawn to these grand destinies where, you know, Merry goes off and becomes a you know, soldier of Rohan and Pippin goes off and, you know, becomes one of the soldiers of Gondor. And in a way, I was going to say, like, well, maybe it's it's Sam's lower class status that relegates him to be like the supporting role that I'm going to carry right. you up the mountain as opposed to being the one that has the grand destiny for him, his own. Uh, whereas Merry and Pippin, who are kind of above him a little bit as equals with Frodo, go off and have these grand destinies and they come back and they're much taller and have the greater stature and this kind of thing. Um, but it, it might be that even Sam's... And I think maybe this is our own perspective too, but looking at Sam as as the hero when he's the one that had even more the grunt job, mm-hmm. but without that grunt job, none of the others would have been able to, to go on and do their thing. But maybe this is also, I, I just crossed my mind that it's kind of the old feminist saying that, you know, the men may be the head, but the women are the neck <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> kind right. of concept. Well, yeah, you know, there's a way in which that kind of idea applies, I think. I mean, think back to what Elrond says at the end of the Council of Elrond when Frodo volunteers, right? And he says that, uh, you know, it, his sense, Elrond's sense of what's going on here is that this is a, this was... This is the hour of the Shire folk, right? That this is this is a job that is meant to be done by the small, not by the great. Um, and small hands will do these large deeds. Um, so, from the begin, you know, from the beginning of the quest, there is this um, emphasis uh, from Elrond, and we see and Gandalf says some things too, you know, to say that it's it's a quest which is not going to be achieved by great and epic people, but by small people. And it's one of the things that we can see from The Hobbit on forward. I mean, from from uh, looking at Bilbo's role in The Hobbit, and then, of course, from the point of view of The Lord of the Rings, the significance of Bilbo's finding the ring, and, you know, the status of the comparatively lowly hobbits as as ring bearers and, and everything. So we can see that there's, there's, this, there's this dynamic of the last shall be first, you know, all the way through there, that, that you know, it's it's... Not the mighty who will accomplish the great deeds. It's the small people who will accomplish the, the great deeds. And, of course, they're talking about Frodo when they're talking about the small people. Because, of course, compared to Elrond and Gandalf and Aragorn, he's a small person. Compared to Frodo, Sam is a small person. <laughs> and so, you know, in some way, he, as the smallest of the small, Sam, therefore, becomes the greatest of all. I mean, there's... And holds all of those other people up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, because he's the most humble, he is in essence, the most great. I mean, here, I mean, I can't help but think of the language in the Gospels about this. You know, I already said, the last shall be first, um, you know, and uh, Jesus saying to the disciples, he who would be greatest among you shall be the servant of all. Uh, that kind of inversion. And in, in, in another place, Jesus is even more explicit talking about hierarchies. Among the, the nations, you know, among the Gentiles, among the Romans, there are, there are hierarchies, you know, there are, there are great ones and they have authority over others, but it shall not be so among you. Instead, you know, he, he who would be greatest shall be your servant. So, I mean, clearly that... That 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 philosophy, that approach is very much one of the overall trends, I think, of the Lord of the Rings. And it's why Sam, even though in that passage in the Silmarillion that I read, he doesn't even get mentioned by name. That's almost a kind of a, I mean, it seems a little backhanded, but that's almost a kind of a compliment. I mean, he is so humble that 
his role is so humble that he doesn't even get named. But that's what makes his role so huge and so great. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to make sure we touched on was when they do return to the Shire and Sam's uh, change in stature from, even though his gaffer is like, oh, Sam, you're still a, a servant in this kind of thing. Um, you know, Frodo predicts that Sam will be mayor and uh, Sam is obviously very much respected among the other hobbits and not looked at as a mere gardener. Now he's the forester and he goes around yes. and plants all the big trees and, you know, is really responsible for ordering the rebuilding of the Shire. So it, it's almost a question, did he change class or right. well, did see, class there not become <laughs> less important? Or? Yeah. And that's really, I, 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 I love that fact. I mean, it's like almost actually like he doesn't change class just as he was close to Frodo and Frodo's friend, but also kept the garden. So he becomes connected in a similar way to the whole rest of the Shire. At the same time, he is basically gardener to the whole Shire, you know, yeah. <laughs> he's going around planting trees. I mean, he's not doing anything different. Uh, you know, it, he calls it going on doing his forestry works. It's called forestry instead of gardening. But it's still basically the same kind of thing. I mean, you remember the box that he's using in his forestry work was explicitly, Goadriel said, for your garden. Yeah. And so, of course, what Sam has done... It's made the entire Shire his garden. Exactly. It made, exactly. And so in becoming gardener of the whole Shire, it's almost like... That's practically another name for the mayor. <laughs> you know, I mean, that it's perfectly appropriate that he be. And of course, the sort of position that Sam rises to um, is qualitatively and appropriately different from, you know, Mary and Sam become the, the sort of hierarchical heads of their great families. Um, Pippin becoming Thane, uh, you know, and therefore will be, you know, Thane Peregrine, the whatever, I don't know if he's the first or, or later, I forget. But um, but anyway, you know, so, but of course, Sam, he's not going to get a title. Uh, he's just going to be elected mayor, what, like seven times or yeah. something? We're going to spend like 50 years as mayor. So anyway, so so we can see that, you know, that, that difference, Sam's position is not one that he sort of has by right or, or by birth or anything like that. It is just his position as mayor is merely an expression of the esteem and affection that everyone else holds him in. And that's because he's been their servant. That's because he's been their gardener, the gardener of everybody in the Shire. Um, and that's, I think, one of the most perfect illustrations of what servanthood means in the Lord of the Rings. That is, you know, when you are the servant of all, you become, it's not that you get authority over someone exactly, since you get mastery over somebody, ironically, but rather you, you earn a kind of love, you earn a kind of respect, which is far more important than, than rank or, or, or position. By being the servant of the whole Shire, he becomes naturally, almost by default, the leader of the whole Shire. Um, and that's what that's what servanthood is. That's what it's that's what it's about. Just as he was, um, I mean, I think of the moments in The Hobbit when you know Tolkien uses the phrase as the as they go on in their travels, and especially as they get into Mirkwood and afterwards, uh, Tolkien will say things like Bilbo had become the real leader of their expedition um, as the most sort of humble and apparently unqualified member of the of the the, the party on the way to the to the Lonely Mountain. Yet he sort of through his actions and by what happens, becomes their real leader. Nowhere does Tolkien say the same thing of Sam, that Sam had become the true leader. But yeah. but he does. I mean, in Mordor, Sam is the true leader of their party. <laughs> Even uh, It's only a two-person party at that point. But anyway, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's still clear, he is clearly leading. Yes. 
even though, you know, he doesn't even know the way and he doesn't, he hardly, certainly doesn't think of himself as, as the leader. But again, by serving, he becomes the leader. And that's um, just a dynamic that I think we can see again and again. Which will be a really interesting thing to look at when we get to talking about government as yeah. well and looking at how Aragorn and Gandalf, particularly uh, in their roles as leaders and especially Aragorn when he becomes king, are looking at themselves more as servants to the people as opposed to, uh, oh, I'm a leader and therefore you must do what I say. <laughs> right, right. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, thinking about servanthood, um, one other other thing that I'd say about it I mean, again, some people might be uncomfortable with it because it sort of looks like Tolkien is sort of affirming a class system that sort of keeps down certain people and keeps them in their subordinate place. And that by uh, by praising Sam for what a good servant he is, that he's just sort of, you know, reinforcing this kind of uh, uh, system. Um, and I, I mean, I don't... Think that's really sort of the heart of what's going on because of the way he's talking about. I mean, what he says about servants and serving. I mean, Sam Gamgee is not just the role model for servants, but the role model for everybody. I yeah. mean, you know, so so I think that that's pretty clear. Um, and what's at the opposite pole of that? The other thing which seems to me to make this so clearly central in Tolkien's thought is that the opposite end of the pole, the opposite of Sam isn't Frodo. The opposite of Sam is Saruman. Or Sauron? I mean, what evil people do in Tolkien, what makes them evil? How do you how you know they're evil <laughs> is that they're searching for mastery. They want dominion over others. That's what the ring does, is it it it, it helps you to gain mastery over other people. And when you're seizing mastery over somebody else, like that's again that's that's the definition of of, of what an evil person does. Therefore you can see that the the sort of the opposite pole of the most evil people are ba- is, is basically Sam, is, is, yeah. is what Sam does. And when you look at it in that broader sense, I was just trying to think of examples of among the other races, among elves and even of men, you don't see explicit examples of servants. Like, you know that they're probably there, especially in, you know, the feast. Somebody's bringing the food, obviously. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. Right. Um, but there isn't a lot of discussion of, like, oh, well, here are our servants. Whereas where you do see that is with uh, Saruman. You see a lot of that, where it's it's his servants, and, you know, Wormtongue is his servant who yes. trails around him, and he kicks him and treats him like dirt. And yes. uh, the orcs are clearly the servants of, and they're usually referred to as that, the servants of Mordor, the servants yeah. of Saruman, depending. Yeah. Even slaves, yeah. Or yeah. slaves, yeah, yeah. And you do have those two kind of opposite extremes, where while Sam may be a servant, his servitude is very different from, it's servitude out of love and out of affection and desiring to care for somebody, as opposed to... Uh, the enslavement down at the other end of the scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somewhere in between there, are, you know, men and elves and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's a good point that there's that kind of range. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one other, one interesting example, the only example I can think of where servants are emphasized in a non-Hobbit society <laughs> in the Lord of the Rings is uh, Denethor's servants who almost burned Faramir to death. Yes. Um, Denethor makes a big deal. Remember, you know, he has that speech about like, you know, can I not can I not command my own servants? To which Gandalf says, "Yes, but others may oppose your will when it's turned to madness and evil." <laughs> right? So you know, so that that dynamic there of the servants who obey Denethor and Baragond 
who rebels against Denethor um, and commits treason, essentially. But it's Baragon who does right and the servants yeah. who do wrong and Gandalf rebukes them. Um, and, and he rebukes them for being blind in their obedience. Um, so, I, and I think that to me seems a really clear example. Tolkien is very far from just saying, hey, you know, servants shut up and obey your masters at all times. I mean, clearly obeying your master at all times <laughs> is not a good thing. One of the things that makes Sam's service of Frodo so admirable is the fact that Frodo is doing something really great, right? And so that yeah. Sam is, and again, there I would come back to Sam's own sense of his higher calling as well, that what he's doing, he, he, he knows on some level, he knows that his service of Frodo is a part of a much larger, greater good thing. Um, whereas the servants of Denethor don't even think about it at all. I mean, you know, they don't, they take no thought to any kind of higher principle and are just like, uh, this is our job. You know, we were just doing as we were ordered. Um, which, of course, as we know, is an uncomfortable kind of argument to make. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's clearly the position that, that, that Denethor servants are in. And, and to put Denethor on the scale of masters, you know, with Frodo being down at the one end and uh, Sauron being up at the other, you know, Denethor is definitely closer up to the, the Sauron end of things because he's not humble at all. He doesn't want to give up his stewardship. He doesn't want to recognize that there's a king. So right. he's aiming for that sort of mastery where, you know, he wants things for himself and he's not going to let his servants make their own choices like Sam is able to make his own choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he clearly presumes on on a pretty com complete authority over his servants. And uh, um, I think even, if, you know, the difference that Gandalf warns Pippin about, the, the difference between Denethor and Theoden, You've met Theoden, but Denethor is not anything like that. And you know, the, no. the warning, this is a cold environment. Of course, Pippin becomes Denethor's servant. And that, that whole environment is, you know, there's no affection there There's for, from anyone. I mean, very few people uh, seem to hold Denethor in that, in the kind of regard. Even I mean, again, compared to Theoden, you compare the love of Theoden's people for him, um, his soldiers' love for him. Um, and with Denethor, Denethor appears to be respected, but... Not loved with a whole Certainly lot of affection. Not loved and possibly maybe a little bit feared, mm -hmm. um, which is another important point, I think. And we mentioned that before. Like, did Sam follow Frodo in the movie? They made it out of fear, which I think was really slighting to Sam um, because he, in no place in the books, I think, was af you know afraid that something would be done to him if he did not follow Frodo. He, yeah. That I can recall. Well, Frodo has that line, I mean, does have that line where he says, he tells Sam that he can't tell anybody about what he's heard, and that if he does, he hopes that Gandalf will turn him into a spotted toad and fill yeah. the garden full of but grass snakes. But even still, that, that's more like, well, don't reveal the secrets, right. unless, right. like, you know, if you don't follow me, I'll have you turned into a toad. Right, um, right, right. Whereas, right. you know, on the other end of the scale, you have the orcs who clearly follow Saruman, not out of any love for Saruman, but because they're afraid of being whipped and, you know, driven. And yes. at the highest end of the scale, as soon as Sauron's will is broken, all the orcs just scatter because right. they have, you know, they're not there fighting for Mordor because they're like, oh, Mordor, we love you. <laughs> we right. really want to make sure this continues yes. on. There's no patriotism by orcs. <laughs> no, they're, they're only in it for themselves. And as soon as they get the chance, they bolt. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. And the issue that I think, thinking in these terms, thinking in terms of mastery, um, mm -hmm. because we haven't talked too much about the relationship, especially the Frodo-Sam relationship, but even just the master-servant relationship in general, too much from the master's perspective. Yeah. Um, of course, we looked at Denethor as a, as a bad master, bad in the sense that he is 
a more Saruman and Sauron-like master that he does appear to expect to dominate his servants in some ways. But clearly being a good master is also a really good thing. I mean, one of the things that is obviously praiseworthy about Frodo is his relationship with Sam as well. Not just Sam's relationship with him, but his relationship with Sam. Well, and even his relationship as a master to Smeagol. Yes. Um, and how he treats him. Yes. Even though he is clearly, you know, lowly and a, a servant in a sense. Um, but he's always, you know, tries to be kind to him and doesn't, you know, Sam's like, oh, well, let's tie him up and this kind of thing. And Frodo's like, no, no, let's treat him with kindness. And then he will follow us as opposed to, you know, putting the fear into him. And, yeah. you know, so and which is an interesting side of Sam's character that Sam as a master you know, if Sam were left to be the master of Smeagol, how would he govern him as opposed to the way that Frodo treats him? Yeah, an interesting question, because, of course, it seems that Sam and his much uh, more abrasive relationship with, with Gollum throughout um, is never, clearly never sees himself in a master-servant relationship yeah. with Gollum. I mean, he and Gollum are more like, you know, they're kind of on the same level in that they both serve Frodo. Frodo. But, of course... Clearly what motivates Sam's irritation against uh, against Gollum is his sense that Gollum is not a good servant. You know, Frodo yeah. is trusting, um, but Sam does not trust him because he is not, he's not, Gollum isn't his servant. Uh, his responsibility is not to Gollum. His responsibility is to Frodo. And so he just has nothing but suspicion for Gollum all the way through because he is, well, he's understandably and, of course, as it turns out, justifiably concerned uh, about, yes. <laughs> about Gollum's <laughs> fidelity. But Frodo, though Frodo is not... I mean, it's not like Frodo is more oblivious than Sam. It's not like Frodo has no suspicions. But because he's in a different relationship with him, he doesn't treat him like that. Um, you know, there's that moment when Sam is kind of surprised, when Frodo rebukes Gollum right in front of the, the Black Gate when Gollum asks for him to give him the ring back and Frodo rebukes him. And Sam is kind of impressed. Um, and it's that moment where Sam says that he, you know, he always thought that Frodo was one of the wisest people in the world. Um, but that he is also one of the kindest people in the world, and that to be as kind uh, as Mr. Frodo, you would have to be blind to a certain extent. I mean, you couldn't be that kind to people without being a little bit blind to their bad side, um, even though, as Tolkien points out, the complete contradiction between his conviction, his simultaneous convictions that Frodo is a little oblivious and that he's deeply wise. So he's so Sam is kind of taken aback when Frodo rebukes Gollum because he can see in that moment Frodo does get it. Frodo does see the danger with yeah. Gollum. He's not just being taken in, but yet, despite the fact that he's not being taken in, he still acts trustingly, kindly, because he's a good master. And that's what good masters do. Good masters treat their servants with that kind of respect, even when, I was going to say, even when the, the servant hasn't earned that kind of respect. Of course, Gollum has done the opposite of earn that <laughs> respect. I mean, he's earned yes. suspicion. So that's, and it's clearly a part of what it means to be a good master. From Frodo's perspective, one word that I would use, and this is an awkward word. This is another word. I, I've, I've never met a, a, a modern American person who is not uncomfortable with this word. My students are always uncomfortable with this word because it means it is a universally negative word in our dialect right now. And that's condescending. We get really I – mean, that, that, that's an insult. You know, you want yeah. you to say something that's being condescending to you. That is, that is, a, that is a, a terrible thing to accuse somebody of from our point of view. But, of course, several decades ago, a century ago – that was a compliment to call somebody condescending. The reasons for that are pretty clear, right? 
when we call somebody condescending, it's an insult because we modern Americans all know that everybody is equal, right? And so therefore, if you're condescending to me, that implies that you think you're higher than I am. And so you coming down to my level, which is what condescending is, you coming down to my level is an implied insult because you thought you were above it to begin with. And so that's why it's so offensive. But of course, if you believe that people are on different levels, condescension is a very good thing. I mean, if you take as your framework that some people are higher and some people are lower, exactly how you would hope and expect the good high people would act would be condescending. And that this is consistently how we see Bilbo and Frodo interacting with their poor neighbors, for instance. They are always condescending. We're told, for instance, that Frodo always calls Sam's father the gaffer. He always calls him Master Hamfast. He's very polite to him. He, you know, he, he treats him not exactly like an equal, um, but treats him with kindness and generosity and, and sort of respects him as a person and um, doesn't look down on him, even though socially Frodo is above the Gamgees. That dynamic of condescension, of a leader or a master who comes down from his position and cares about those beneath him as people and sort of bring, you know, comes down to their, to their level and, and interacts with them almost as if they're equals. That's a fairly consistent model in the people higher up in the hierarchies in Tolkien's yeah. world, whether it's, whether it's masters or kings. I mean, good kings do this. I mean, Theoden does this too. Theoden, um, we can see this in Theoden riding to war to Helm's Deep, you know, when he's, you know, no, I myself shall ride in the forefront of the battle. And that's the thing that the Rohirrim love most. They are so excited when Theoden <laughs> is going to come down and ride in the forefront of the battle with them. Not only is he going to come with them, he's not even going to stand in the back and let them go into battle. He's going to be right there, elbow to elbow with them. That's what good leaders do. That's what uh, good masters do in Tolkien. Um, so Frodo is clearly a wonderful master. And, but, of course, this means that a wonderful master is a humble master, yeah. um, is, is a master who is more like a servant. <laughs> so, I mean, again, we come back to some of the same principles. So, therefore, kind of to wrap up and return to the not exactly question that we started with, you can clearly see, I mean, there's no question, there's no sense trying to avoid the fact that class structure is very much a Present. part of Tolkien's world. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe rather than... Um it being a strict class structure in what you're used to seeing and what we're a little uncomfortable with. Uh, we might be uncomfortable with the terms, but when we actually sit down and examine the relationships there, um, Tolkien's consistent in that uh, there's a certain level of equality even between different classes in the case that a good master is going to come down a bit to the level of his servant and the servant can then be elevated. Yeah. Um almost to, because of the relationship between them, because of the respect between them. Whereas, you know, a strict class structure, which may be more what we're reading into it when we hear the word class structure, the thought of somebody being a master over somebody else and strictly being stuck at those levels is, is what he, we see as the bad master, the, the Saruman end of the master-servant relationship. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the things that the moral elements that make us most uncomfortable with the idea of a class structure are things which are still uncomfortable in Tolkien's world, despite the fact that it exists. I mean, the idea of looking down your nose at somebody and considering somebody beneath you you. and, 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 you know, therefore, to some degree, contemptible, that's a bad thing in Tolkien's world. But that doesn't mean everyone's on the same level. 
in fact, you could even say that Tolkien takes the class structure you know, that existed in his own society as a kind of framework within which to illustrate the particular virtues that he is interested in illustrating. You could say that the fact that Frodo and Sam are master and servant gives both of them sort of a greater opportunity to show particular virtues than they would have if they were just friends. I mean, Sam's servanthood gives him the opportunity, puts him in the situation to show the kind of completely selfless devotion to Frodo, which is one of the very most admirable virtues in the entire, in Tolkien's entire world. By being Sam's master, Frodo is put in the position to have the opportunity to show the kind of courtesy and humility, uh, even pity and kindness that like he shows to Gollum as well. He wouldn't have the same opportunity to demonstrate those kinds of things or to develop those kinds of virtues um, as he would if he were a master. So in that way, I think we can see Tolkien almost sort of using the class system as a tool or an instrument to illustrate these kinds of moral principles that he's really interested in. Well, that wraps things up for today. Thanks again to Tara for agreeing to make a second appearance on my podcast, and I look forward to further conversations. Remember, everybody, to check back in the next couple days for some very interesting announcements. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.